Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning at verse 15. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal or earth or on earth or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you are now. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan. But you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And we now move to Hebrews uh, chapter 12, commencing at verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But... You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God, accepting with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, they've wheeled me out once again. <laughs> Great to be here with you again here in the, 
at St Philip's at six. I'm Rob Forsyth, whose normal haunt is in the daylight hours here at St Philip's. But I come out at night too. Now, where is this sermon going? Here's where it's going. It's going to Hebrews 12, 28, 29. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28, 29. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I want to talk about two key elements of Christian worship, of Christian life, fear and confidence, faith and fear, both at the same time. Our God is a consuming fire. We are receiving an unshakable kingdom. We're receiving an unshakable kingdom and our God is a consuming fire. Yes, we're going to arrive at Hebrews 12, 28, 29, but we're going to get there by beginning at Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, where the writer of Hebrews contrasts for his readers two overwhelming experiences at two overwhelming mountains, one they've not come to, one they have come to. And these mountains, as we'll see, are the two centres of the whole biblical story. You can't get bigger than these two. So let's begin. Step back a moment. One of the dominant themes of this written sermon, which is what Hebrews probably is, addressed to a congregation of Jewish believers, mostly in Rome in probably the early 60s of the first century, is how much better is Christ than what they had before? How much better is Christ? Um, that's such a great theme that my son, who runs a church in Melbourne, also had a th series on Hebrews this year, and he just called their series down there, Better. Better, full stop. The readers are tired. They are in danger of becoming dispirited in the face of hardship, hardship because they are believers, and the writer wants to reassure them how much better is Jesus. So don't give up. Don't give up. And this, this, as you may have heard, this writing, it's not really a letter in the normal sense of the word, doesn't begin like a normal letter, so-and-so to so-and-so, greetings, blah, blah, blah. It just goes bang. First words of the entire document. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times, in many ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son. Bang, there it is. A believing Jew writing to fellow believing Jews. God, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, but in his last days, he has spoken to us by a son. How much better? Something new and something better. And he then unpacks for the rest of this document. And if you've been coming to the series, you'll see what a rich feast that it's been that follow how Jesus is better and why the readers and us, by implication, should hang in there. And now in chapter 12, to chapter 12, better again. Two contrasting mountains. One they've not come to. Now, the writer does not name this, but see if you can recognise it. I quote from chapter 12, 18 to 21. You heard it just a moment ago. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast and to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it 
could beg no further words be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded even if an animal touches the mountain it will be stoned to death the sight was so terrifying that Moses said I am trembling with fear the author doesn't name the mountain he doesn't have to for his readers it is instantly recognisable this is one of the seminal moments in the whole of scripture one of the seminal moments in the whole of scripture it is the descent of the Lord God onto Mount Sinai. The Lord God had redeemed his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. He brought them to himself. He now comes down in, in, to establish a covenant between himself and his people. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is referring to when he says, you've not come to, etc., etc. Let me read an excerpt from the account in Exodus Chapter 19, 16 and following. You'll see what I mean. This is what Exodus says. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and so on. Yes, this is definitely what the author of the Hebrews has in mind when he says to his readers, you have not come to. In his description, not unsurprisingly if you know how these things work, the author enumerates seven things they've not come to. Seven being a very special language in scripture. They've not come to something that can be touched. The word mountain has been added by the NIV translators for further clarity. But you've not come to something that can be touched. Two, that's burning with fire. Three, darkness. Four, gloom. Five, storm. Six, trumpet blast. Seven, a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. It was, as the author says, a terrifying sight. And yet to his readers, he says, you've not come to that. What they have come to is new and better. New and better. Also, by the way, with the seven features from verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's one. You have come to thousands of thousands of angels in joyful assembly. That's two. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. That's three. And you've come to God, the judge of all. That's four. To the spirits of the righteous, made perfect. That's five. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, that's six. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that's seven. That, he says to his readers, you have come to. What is that? That is a description of the heavenly dwelling place of God. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Just as there is an earthly Jerusalem, an earthly Mount Zion, so there is a heavenly one, as the writer says elsewhere in Hebrews, one not of this creation. How have they come to the heavenly dwelling place of God? How could that be? The writer has already told them back in chapter 10, verse 19 and following. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his body, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. They have been able to draw near to God, to go to the most holy place, to the presence of the dwelling place of God by the blood of Jesus, because they have a great priest over the house of God. They have confidence. The word used here, by the way, is a word for boldness, barefaced. They can go to the very presence of God. That's how they've come. And what is this place? It is a place of joy and celebration. He says in Hebrews 12, you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Think about that. It makes the recent Matilda's show of me a side thing, doesn't it really? Thousands and thousands of angels in, in joyful assembly. Imagine that. The author also says, verse 23, you've come to, quote, the church of the, new, of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. The word translated as church here is the word for assembly, gathering, congregation, as it's, as it's used right throughout the New Testament to mean that. This is the congregation of God's elect. The word firstborn does not mean literally those first among siblings, which I'm personally rather sorry to say, but it means those highly esteemed heirs of God, th those whose names are written in heaven. In fact, I wonder whether he means the whole of that, of, the, of that gathering, living, dead, and yet to be, perhaps. Because this is a description, if you like, of the great church, that one Catholic and apostolic church which is always gathered around the throne of God and to which all believers belong, to which all believers belong. You might say that this an earthly gathering, like here tonight at 6.30 at St. Philip's, is a momentary expression of the one great continual heavenly assembly, heavenly church. Next, it is rather surprising this should come so far down the list. You've come to God, the judge of all. Or perhaps it's late in the list because we're kind of moving in towards the center, I don't know. But you've come to God, the judge of all. And the next feature they've come to is, quote, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is a term used in Jewish literature of the time to refer for the godly dead. And so I wonder whether, he, whether he, the author has in mind, in particular, all those people of faith who did not receive yet, mentioned in Hebrews 11. And then he says they've come, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus' role in mediating that new covenant has been the subject of extensive exposition in Hebrews chapter 8, 9 and 10. And that's the point about the two mountains. The earthly covenant, the first covenant between God and his people, is the covenant at Mount Sinai. But the new covenant is the heavenly one mediated by Jesus in the New Jerusalem. And, that's, and the author says, you've not come to this one, brackets, anymore. You've come to this one the new covenant mediated by Jesus. And finally, he says, they've come to, quote, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the blood of Jesus, which is high priest, raised from the dead, extended to heaven. He, he offers once for all in the heavenly tent, the heavenly holy place. Abel's blood was that which cried out to God against Cain, his brother, who'd murdered him, as we read way back in, in, uh, in Genesis 3. But here Jesus' word speaks, he says, a better word, which I think is almost an understatement, really. A better word? 
In the words of the 19th century, uh, that lovely 19th century Italian hymn, Glory Be to Jesus, Abel's blood for vengeance pleaded to the skies, but the blood of Jesus for our pardon cries. Jesus' sprinkled blood which makes purification for sins. Now that's all that. Those seven things, those seven features are what they have come to as believers in Christ. They've come not to the mountain of fear, but to the mountain of joy. Not to the mountain of fear, but to the mountain of joy. And that is where you also have come if you're in Christ this evening. Though you're sitting here in somewhat chilly St. Philip's, you're also by faith gathered around the throne of the great gathering, the great gathering in heaven already, continually by the work of the Holy Spirit. You're also there. And in fact, there's a moment in the liturgy of our church, uh, in the communion service, which, which we're having tonight, where that reality is particularly expressed. Now, you may not have noticed this, but after tonight, you'll think differently about it, I hope. There's a little dialogue, um, you may have noticed, where it goes like this. The minister, the priest says, lift up your hearts, we say, we lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is meet and right so to do. Or words like that. I think they'll be slightly different tonight. But the same point. Now, that little dialogue is called the sursum corda, from the Latin words, up hearts. <laughs> Latin's quite a direct language, apparently. Sursum corda, up hearts. Lift up your hearts. And it dates back. It's one of the earliest continual examples of Christian liturgy. It dates back to the third century AD. That is the 200s. Right? It was first, we first, we have it, 200s. And, and what is it? Well, it's a call for people to lift their hearts. But, but to lift them to where? Lift up your hearts. What's the response? We lift them to the Lord. To the Lord. That is, we lift them to the heavenly dwelling place of God, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And after a few more lines, we get words a little like this. I'm using the old-fashioned ones, but tonight, again, it's slightly different. But we get to this point. Therefore, there's always a prayer of, of why, and then we come. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we lord and magnify thy great and glorious name. That is, we lift our hearts to join with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. That is, to join with the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To join the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. To join with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To join with them, with all the company, in praising the thrice holy God. Therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we lord and magnify thy great and glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Glory be to thee, O Lord most high. That last bit coming from the vision Isaiah saw of the seraphim singing continually about the holiness of God. Now, that's a way that liturgically we express the truth of Hebrews 12. 28 and following, 14 and following, that we ourselves at that moment explicitly acknowledge that we lift our hearts to the very heavenly gathering of which we are part, there to be fed by the Lord Jesus Christ with his body and blood 
for our salvation. So I hope you will never say this again without thinking about it like that. It's not just a bit of blah, blah, blah. It's a very profound piece of theological writing at the heart of our service. Well, let's exp- let's, let me summarise where we've got to. The original readers of Hebrews are Jewish believers under pressure to give up on Jesus. For them to be told that they've not come to the mountain of fear, Mount Sinai, but they've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, is profoundly significant. Profoundly significant for them. It is the ultimate new and better moment in Hebrews. It is the ultimate new and better moment in Hebrews. In many ways, it's the grand summing up of all that has gone before. It is a a climax of the document. Now, if like me, you are not Jewish and you had to find the scriptures through Jesus, not the scriptures, you didn't live in the world of scriptures, it may not be, you may miss something of the wonder and joy of this remarkable statement. But I'm urging you not to, not to, let it really impact you. Let it really impact you, not the mountain of fear, which once reigned, now now the mountain of joy, the very presence of God. That's what you've come to. Now here's the thing. Because the readers have been told they've not come to the mountain of fear, but the mountain of joy, what do you think the author will say next? What follows from that? What are the implications of it? Well, you might expect the writer to say something like, therefore, rejoice, or relax in this truth, or there's no need to be afraid anymore of God. We ourselves may even start down that old well-worn track, track of contrasting the angry, demanding God of the Old Testament and the loving God of the New. If that's what you think, you could not be more wrong. Having made the powerful contrast, here's what the author now says. I quote from verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. That's the implication. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. He goes on. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much more will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Now that is bracing and it's the opposite of what you might expect, but it's a very typical of Hebrews. For there's another great theme of Hebrews. One of them is better. There's another theme as well, which is this. Jesus, yes, in Jesus there is something new and better. But the other thing, it's, therefore, it says in Hebrews, giving up is even more worse. Giving up is even more worse, more disastrous. Almost you could say Hebrews says, the higher you are, the greater the fall. And so Hebrews often does this, both talking about the wonders of the better and then the warning a warning about if you give up on the gospel, you stop hearing. The higher you are, the greater the fall. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, that is at Mount Sinai, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns from heaven? 
that is from Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It is bracing. However, the author of Hebrews does not leave it there either. He modifies, there is a severe note, but then, but then he swings back. As always in Hebrews, there's a countervailing positive as well. And once again, he uses the earthly, heavenly contrast. Verse 26. At, at that time, that's Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. At that time, on Mount Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. Now he has promised, using the slightly modified words of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6 in the Greek scripture, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The author, in his creative reading of the prophet, which is typical of the author of Hebrews, sees that text as a promise. I think it's a promise of God shaking, as it were, his creation so that only what, what cannot be shaken remains. A kind of end of the fragile, the end, only the, uns, the unshakable remains. The, the end of created things, he says, actually. Now, the key point is the readers will inherit that heavenly reality. That's better. The readers will inherit that heavenly reality. They will inherit that kingdom which cannot be shaken. That's what he says. Therefore, verse 28, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. There's a word of assurance. A strong promise. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that leads to a life of gratitude. Let us be thankful. And what does being thankful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken consist in? What does living the Christian life consist in? Let me read the whole of verse 28 and 29. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There it is. Since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And so we arrive at where I said at the beginning this sermon was going. You'll notice if you've got the NIV open that the translators have put quotation marks around the last phrase for our, quote, God is a consuming fire. They've done that because the phrase, our God is a consuming fire, is actually a citation from Deuteronomy. What does it mean? Well, let me put it back in context. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, we heard it read just a moment ago, verse 24. This is Moses warning the Israelites not to put anything next to God. Verse 23 of chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. Be careful not to forget the covenant, the Lord your God, that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Consuming fire here means God's, the fire of God's searing holiness. He is a jealous God. The word jealous 
Kanagi means meaning compassion, infuriated. For us, for humans, we think of weakness as petty weakness, petty jealousy, weakness, you'd weak. For God, it is his passionate, exclusive zeal for his holiness. For us, it's a sign often of weakness to be jealous. For God, it's his passionate holiness that you're none other but he is God. Exclusive place. And that's why he's to be worshipped with reverence and awe. That's where you start. Our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, by this time, your head might be spinning. I mean, Hebrews seems to spin, to, to veer from one extreme to the other. One minute, you're told, you've not come to a mountain of fear, but to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Next minute, you're told, if they did not escape when they were refused him who was warned from earth, how much will we if we turn away from him who warned from heaven? One minute we're told we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Next minute we're told our God is consuming fire. Well, which is it? Extreme confidence or extreme fear? Make up your mind, Hebrews. Which is it? The answer of Hebrews is it's both. It's both. And it's both not veering, but both one and the same time. It's both, both once and the same time. And it's fully both, one and the same time. We are receiving an unshakable kingdom and our God is consuming fire. Both the same, our God is consuming fire and we're receiving an unshakable kingdom. Now, it simply will not do to have only one and not the other. It simply will not do only to have a God who is inclusive, hospitable and loving, as some churches do and as our culture demands we do. That's what, that's what, that's what our culture wants. And it simply will not do only have a God who is a God of judgment and demand, as we may be tempted to do in reaction to our culture. And worse still, and this is our temptation, I think, it simply will not do to have a God who's just a little bit holy and only a little bit of confidence to enter the holy place. A little bit of fear, a little bit of faith. A weak little God and a weak little confidence. That's the temptation for us. To turn the whole thing down. So it's a little bit of each. Not as the, as, as the scriptures and he puts, both up to full volume. It must be both. Full confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Not a little bit of confidence, full confidence, full boldness. And the full searing holiness of God. Both turned up to full volume at the one time. That's the conclusion. Now, there is another chapter of Hebrews to go after this. And Justin will be bringing it to us the next, next fortnight, two weeks. And it's something of a more application, more detailed, but I think we can say that this end of chapter 12 tonight is something of a theological and pastoral climax to the letter. 
And I know, I, I've enjoyed Hebrews. I hope you have too. I don't know how you're going with it, you poor people, putting up with all this stuff from us. Well, don't, don't blame me. I can't apologise. I didn't write it, okay? <laughs> I didn't write it. I just teach it. But as, you, as we prepare to leave Hebrews behind for the time being, at least, I want you to take this with you. You take nothing else with you. Take this with you. Take with you the two key elements of the Christian life and of Christian worship. Fear and faith. The holiness of God and complete boldness to enter his presence, both together, both at the same time. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire.